Father, thank you that we can be here. Thank you for the beauty of this day and the privilege of this worship. Thank you, Lord God. That's, we can ask you to give or answer that prayer. Help us make us a generation that seeks your face and know that you will answer that prayer. Help us, Father, to pray that prayer where we need it today in the light of the word that you're going to speak to us today. I pray, God, that when we're done, each of us will not only understand your truth about truth and your word about our words, but that we'll live that word in a way that will make a difference in our lives and our culture. So, Father, speak to us, teach us, say anything you want to say. This is your time. Speak from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're talking about word today as we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount and we come to this part. I thought I'd begin with some really practical help. Maybe I've done this in the past. I don't remember. Have I taught you how to cuss biblically? Have I taught you how to do that? No? Well, what you want to use is Babylonian king's names. See, it works like this. You miss it. See how that works? Say Belshazzar. Or you shank a drive. You say Nebuchadnezzar. See how that works? See how that works? Just, you know, brush up on your Babylonian king's names. And then next time you need to, you know, it's what you do. It solves everything, doesn't it? You know, Tommy's taking notes. I see him write that down back there. Although Tommy probably doesn't need that advice, knowing the way he plays golf, but be that as it may. Well, that's not the only way to solve language. Unfortunately, we have a bit of a problem in our culture. Here are some examples. That's not nice, is it? You want to watch out for those, especially... You want to watch out for those, especially... And I didn't know the deer could read, so they know it's only the next mile that they're allowed to do that, I guess. And then I thought this was interesting. There you go. So not supposed to do that. So someone did some numbers. What percentage of Americans say, I will lie when it suits me as long as it doesn't cause any real damage? 64%. What percent of Americans say, I lie regularly? 91%. And the other 9% were lying on the survey. You know, see how that works? What percent of Americans say honesty is the best policy? 34%. Not good news, is it? And yet Jesus makes this statement. Out of the abundance of the heartical section, speaks. And so as we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we come now to a very practical section, a very practical paragraph, where Jesus wants to talk to us about the way we talk. Wants to talk to us about our language about the words we use, because the words we use convey the heart we have. And our words are so much more powerful than we realize they are. In the Jewish culture, there was this idea that the word connoted and sometimes created reality. Remember, God said, let there be light, right? God spoke the universe into being. There was this idea that if I speak a blessing, it can't come back. If I speak a curse, it can't come back. by a young disciple. The disciple there's this old rabbinic story about a rabbi that was being slandered by a young disciple. The disciple came to repentance, came back to the rabbi, asked for forgiveness, and asked what he could do to make restitution. So the rabbi asked the young man to take his pillow, which was filled with feathers, and slid it and scatter it to the wind. So he did. He came back. And the rabbi said, now gather up all the feathers. And the disciple said he couldn't. And the rabbi said, that's how it is with your words. In the biblical context, words are so much more powerful than we realize they all can. And that's why Jesus wants to talk to us about how we talk. So we're in Matthew chapter 5. We're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and we come to this statement, Matthew 5, 33. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. And he's citing, of course, that is what Thickest Numbers and Deuteronomy in making that statement. 
And of course he's right, and of course that is what the Scriptures clearly teach. So let's talk about that. What does it mean to break your oath? What does it mean to lie? What is that? Well, obviously it's speaking false words. It's saying it's raining when it's not raining. It's saying something that is categorically untrue, right? But it's also giving false impressions. We're really good at that in church life. One of the best ways to gossip is to do it in the context of a prayer request. <laughs> know what I mean? We really need to be praying impression of godliness so I can gossip at home. See how that works? Giving the impression of godliness so I can gossip. False impressions are lying. The Bible says withholding truth is lying. Look at this, Leviticus 5. If a person sins because he does not speak up, when he hears a public charge to testify regarding something he has seen or learned about, he will be held responsible. Not telling the whole truth is deceit and lying. Now, our culture, of course, doesn't agree. You and I live in what's known as postmodern relativism. The idea is truth is personal, individual, and subjective. 91% of Americans say they are their own sole determiner of moral truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. You have no right to force your beliefs on me. No right to tell me. It doesn't matter what you tell me what to do. Does that sound familiar? Different religions are different roads up the same mountain. doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere and tolerant. That's the mantra of the day. The Bible categorically disagrees. To say there's no such thing as absolute truth is to make an absolute truth claim. Right? There's no such thing as truth, and I'm sure of it. But that's, of course, nonetheless, what the culture would have you believe. So let's look at what God says in response. Why does God think you should tell the truth? Well, first of all, he says, do it without exception. This applies to every one of us. Each of each other, render true and sound judgment in your courts. It applies to every one of us. Each of you must put off falsehood, must put off falsehood, and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Those are commands in Scripture. Another example. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place, no matter how tempted to lie we are. Well, what does God think about lying? The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. A fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. Lying breaks our relationship with God. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely any yeah buts presence. Do you see any exceptions there? See any loopholes? See any yeah buts? No one who practices deceit. No one who speaks falsely. Look at this, Psalm 5, 6. God, speaking of God, you destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. May not do it today, but it will happen eventually. That's what Scripture says. So, why then would you want to tell the truth? Colossians 3, 9 says, Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Out of the overflow of this. If Scripture is so clear, as we saw earlier. So let's talk about this for a second. Why do we do this? If Scripture so clearly tells us that we're to speak truth at all times to all people in all ways, if Jesus makes very clear that this reveals our heart, that God, in fact, judges lying, God judges deceit, God judges false impressions, God judges withholding truth, then why do we do this? Well, first of all, it's part of our fallen human nature. The Bible says, even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward and speak lies. Expect to be tempted. They're not 
Expect to be tempted to give wrong impressions. Expect to be tempted to say things that aren't true or to not say things that are true because that's part of our fallen condition, Scripture says. We also do this, a lot of us do this, to compensate for our failures. The psychologists speak of what's called the idealized self. It's the person we wish we were. Social media is so popular today is because I can pretend on social media to be someone I'm not. I can create a false self, an avatar. I can be somebody in my Facebook posts. I can be somebody in my Instagram. I can be somebody in how I communicate myself to the world that isn't who I am. And that's such a popular temptation because we all want to do that. I want you to believe better of me than I know to be true of me. I right now, I'm not saying that rhetorically, right now, I want you to think more of me than I think of me. I know things about me you don't know about me. I don't want you to know. So I create that you don't need to know. I know things about my present, even maybe my future. I don't want you to know. So I create the self I wish I was. It's called an idealized self. And I project that to the world. And I go through life trying to live up to who I wish I was and who I want you to think I am. Does that make sense? I know this doesn't apply to anyone here today. This is irrelevant to all of you. You're wondering, why am I even here today? None of this applies to me. Well, if that's the case, then it especially applies to you, right? That's the nature of what it is to be fallen people. And when we lie to convey an impression about ourselves that is not who we really are, we're acting out our fallenness. But it's a common reason, maybe the most common reason why we lie. We lie to get ahead, of course. We lie to make the deal. We lie to, and had this one particular curry favor. I, when I, I used to be a graphic artist back when I was early in seminary days, and had this one particular customer that kept what he called a lie book. You remember these little spiral notebooks you could get at the grocery store? May still be able to, about that size. He kept one in his pocket. And when he told me, he told me this, and when he said something that wasn't true to one of his clients, he would write it down. That way, the next time he saw them, he could remember the lie he spoke so that he could repeat the lie again. He kept, it was, he called it a lie book. I've experienced this. You know, that was the way he kept it up because you've all experienced this. I've experienced this. It's easy to remember the truth. It's not as easy to remember lies. Not as easy to remember the thing you said that wasn't true. So for the next time, you need to remember what you said. And so he kept a lie book. He's the only person I've ever met that did that physically, but a lot of us, I think, do it mentally. And he was doing it to get ahead. He was doing it to make the sale. He was doing it to impress the client. We lie to hurt those who hurt us. If somebody lied about me, I feel justified in lying about them. If somebody slanders me, I therefore can slander them. If somebody hurts me, I have the right now to hurt them, I think. And then bottom line, we lie because we're tempted by the enemy. For there is, Scripture says, Satan was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Next time you're tempted to lie, understand you're being tempted to lie. Recognize the source. And as I've said so often, sin will always take us further than we wanted to go, keep us longer than we wanted to stay, and cost us more than we wanted to pay. Always. At the time, the, it never does. Ultimately, it cost, but that's itself a lie. It never does. Ultimately, it never does. It just doesn't. So, 
How do we then tell the truth? How do we be truth tellers in a way that's as countercultural as it would be to do this today? Well, Jesus had earlier quoted their statements, do not break your oath, fulfill the oath to the Lord you made. Now Jesus, verse 34, says, I tell you, emphatic in the Greek, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. So here's the background of a statement. In Jesus' day, the uh, rabbinical authorities, the religious authorities, had worked out a very sophisticated method of oath, of truth-telling. There were things they could swear by that they didn't feel bound to. Other things that if they swore by, they therefore had to keep. It was a cultural thing. It's not something that we're familiar with, but that's just how it worked. An example of that, I uh, spent the summer of 1979 as a missionary in East Malaysia on the island of Borneo. It's an incredible experience, a frightening experience as well, but a terrific experience. And a lot of the time that we were doing this work, we were doing with Asian populations, with Asian minorities. At that point in time, Malaysia forbade evangelizing native Malay and about 10% of the population. But you could share the gospel with somebody that wasn't a native Malay and about 10% of the population were Chinese primarily. And they were people you could share the gospel with. And so the churches where I spent my summer were primarily Asian in the orientation. I learned a little bit of Mandarin, learned enough to be dangerous. I discovered Mandarin speaks on levels, like ni hao ma is hi, how are you? Ni hao ma is an insult. I learned that the hard way. I also discovered that you can inflect the word for pastor improperly, and it's grapefruit. <laughs> so I was standing up one Sunday and complimenting their pastor and what a great pastor he was and how much we'd enjoyed working with their pastor. And they were laughing, and I couldn't figure out why they were laughing. Found out I was calling them a grapefruit the whole time, so it was a challenge. But one of the biggest cultural things I had to learn in that context was, in their culture, at least back in 1979, I think one know today, face is so important, respect is so important, they will never tell someone no. They will always say yes to any question you ask, because they don't want to offend you. So for instance, if you ask them, would you like to come to our home for lunch? They will say yes, and then not show up. And I'm looking around, and we've got lunch ready, and they're not there, and why aren't they there? I found out from the missionaries, they have to say yes three times before they really mean yes. See how that works? They assume you don't really want them to come, and you're just being nice. See how that works? I didn't get that memo. I had no idea. You have to ask three, at least back then, you had to ask three times, and they had to say yes three times before they were actually going to show up. That was just the way the culture worked. Well, in Jesus' day, the culture was such that I could take an oath by that tree, or I could take an oath by this chapel, I could take an oath by anything but God, and I'm just basically emphasizing what I'm saying, but I'm not bound by it. Only if I take an oath in God's name am I bound by that oath. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying that in their day, there were people that would take an oath by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem, or by their head. And Jesus' point is, in spiritual and secular belongs to God. Every day belongs to God. You can't separate Sunday and Monday and spiritual and secular and religion in the real world. And therefore, every word you speak is a word you need to speak to the glory of God. That's his point. And so he illustrates it like this. Don't swear by heaven because that's God's throne. Don't separate heaven from God. 
Don't swear by the earth because that's God's footstool. Don't separate God and earth. Don't swear by Jerusalem because that's God's city. Don't even swear by Jesus came along later and said, well, you can die. You can't make one hair white or black. Skeptics came along later and said, well, you can dye your hair, and that's true. You can change the color of your hair, but you can't change the nature of your hair. You can dye gray roots, but when it grows back out, it's still gray, right? You can't change the color. Well, you can change the color. You can't change the nature of it. That's Jesus' point. That's how little we own what we think we own. And the bottom line is simply this. Make no division between the words you speak in church and the words you speak out of church. Because understand, every word you say, God hears. And every word we say, God wishes to glorify himself. Jesus summarizes like this. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. The last day, think about the last lie you told. The last statement you made that wasn't true. Maybe you created a false impression. Maybe you didn't say the whole truth. Maybe you said something that was categorically not true. You were expressing your fallen nature. Were you compensating? Were you trying to get ahead? Were you trying to hurt someone? Could be more than one of those. You were tempted by the enemy. Is to speak the truth. The invitation of Jesus is to speak the truth only the truth, always the truth, to the glory of God. And when that's really hard, ask God to help you do it. We can't really keep God's word apart from God's spirit. So the next time we're tempted to deceive, the quick prayer is, Lord, help me to say the truth. Lord, help me to know the truth. Lord, help me to speak the truth. Lord, help me to be a truth teller. And he'll answer that prayer. You may even hear yourself say things you didn't plan to say. You may be discerning things you didn't know you were going to discern. But if that'll be your prayer, this will be your answer. And God will help you to be a truth teller to his glory. And you will be so different in a culture that doesn't believe in truth. Your light will shine so brightly in tellers. And the world will see something about you that will draw them to your Lord. It will be truth tellers. So that's Jesus' point in this part of the sermon we're studying. I'll close with this. There's a story about a ship that was making its way through the fog of the night. The captain looked off in the distance, saw two lights. He perceived them to be the lights of an oncoming ship. And so he signaled to the ship, change your heading 10 degrees west. Back came the reply, change your heading 10 degrees east. Well, the captain was irritated. He signaled back, I am an admiral. Change, change your heading 10 degrees east. Back came the answer, I am a seaman fourth class. Change your heading 10 degrees east. Now he was enraged, and he said, this is a United States naval vessel under the authority of the U.S. government. Change your heading 10 degrees west. Back came the reply, change your heading. I'm a lighthouse. <laughs> when we don't speak and live the truth, we're sailing into a night fog, and the rocks are nearby. And now's the time to change our heading. So let's pray about that. Is there a place in your life where this part of the Sermon on the Mount was relevant for you? A place where God would have you, even today, do business with Him? Confess, then confess it right now.
If there's a pattern, then admit that to the Lord. Right now, ask the Holy Spirit to help you perceive and speak truth all through your day. Then make the commitment to be a truth teller tomorrow. When tomorrow comes, make that commitment again. And the life. We glorify the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Father God, I thank you for this very practical word from your son's message to us. I'm so grateful, God, that it's just as relevant now as when he first spoke it. And I pray that because of this word, my words, this day, will glorify you and draw people to you as I speak truth to glorify the one who is the truth. I pray for me and us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.